Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you are listening to The School of Discipleship. Welcome to our series on Bible Interpretation, the reliability and usability of the Christian scriptures in our age. In this eight-part series, Reverend Preston Graham examines the veracity, objectivity, and applicability of Scripture amongst the world's ever-changing approach to biblical interpretation, and ultimately answers how we can be assured that the Bible itself is sufficient. So we are really moving uh, through some material now. We have three more lessons. Um, For those who are coming in fresh, uh, maybe if you weren't here last time, um, we went through and we're going to review very briefly uh, a summary of the basic methodology. Uh, I'm going to hit on a few things I didn't get to hit on last time. But then quickly we're going to move into genre, the whole literary analysis uh, approach. And, um, and as we do that, uh, we're going to look at four handouts. And so if you've already looked at the syllabus, you know that the handouts are not going to be in the PowerPoint. I'm going to ask you to pull them up. I'll pull them up here, so you can just follow me here. But if you want to follow it there, uh, you'll have to go on the website and download or pull up those handouts that are right in the section, okay? Because the fact is, I'm just going to touch on a few things. Uh, we don't have enough time to walk through each. Each handout is like a whole lesson. So you can, you know, so I'm going to kind of point out a few things in each handout uh, just to kind of give you the, 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 the key that unlocks the secret to that genre, so to speak. Um, but you'll want to go through it and probably be a little slower, and, and you can do that with the whole handout rather than the PowerPoint. That's the, that's the idea, all right? So with that, um, also as we go through the basic methodology, and again, I'm going to spend about 10 minutes on that, so we're going to go pretty quickly, but if at any point you want to ask a question, it was something that you thought of after maybe, or you just now thought of it, I still want there to be a lot of interaction. I just don't want to rush. I'd rather, I guess, not get as much done and you be actively engaging this stuff than us just getting through the material, you know? So you have permission to interrupt anytime or... And I'll try to engage you as well. But I hope you're enjoying this. I think we've really covered some good material and gives me a good feeling to think there's at least somebody out there that's learning some of this because I think Christianity is at stake behind all this. I mean, if we can't, again, the thesis of this whole thing is that we're moving into a a period of time where where Christianity as we know it is not, we're not going to have social advantages to being Christians. Um, there's not going to be political advantages to being Christians. There's not going to be economic advantages to being Christians. And that's what we enjoyed in this country for a long time in, in a relatively orthodox manner. But that's been changing now for the last about you know 80 years or so. And um, I really think uh, you're going to have a massive defection when it gets really uncomfortable being Christians. And by defection, I don't mean that people will stop saying, Lord, Lord, as Jesus even said predicted, but but there won't be lordship, really, uh, because we won't be able to go to the scripture in a definitive and objective way and bring something out of it. So this is a post-Christendom uh, oriented uh, study that I've been doing precisely so that you would be able to um, have confidence 
in the reliability of the scripture and and your and and in the reliability of Bible interpretation to get a definitive, objective word from God. You know, that's that's the goal of this whole thing. If we lose that, we've lost it all. And we've lost our convictions. So let's start and pray. Father, thank you again for this group and their diligence to be here and Thank you for uh, your scripture, Lord, just how precious it is that we have, in a manner that is accessible to us, we have your mind. That's just incredible that, that you, our creator and savior, have chosen to, to articulate your thinking and your imagination and your loves and your values and your laws. You've given us this, Lord, that we might know them and and that you might give us strong convictions of faith that would uh, sustain us and persevere us through times of trouble. So Lord, help us now to continue this and help us to know you as we know your word. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All righty, here we go. Um, just remi- again, a little thing, a uh, reminder. Uh, there's, there's really three goals And these words kind of define that. One, of course, is what we call exegesis, uh, which is the careful and systematic process towards the discovery of the original intended meaning of a Bible passage so as to preserve the lordship of God as exercised through Scripture. From there, you want to have theological reflection, a deliberate attempt to place the discovered meaning into a confessional or communal context of reading the Bible so that we can read Scripture together as a community. We call that confessionalism or theological reflection. And of course, we want to draw from uh, our study of the scripture its significance to our life in a meaningful way. Um, So that's kind of where we're going. Uh, Remember that. And so last week, I'm going to, again, if you weren't here last week, sorry, I'm not going to stop. But I come up with 12 steps of, of Bible interpretation. I want to remind you what I said two weeks ago, that these are not, uh, it's not a science, it's not a flow chart that, that works perfectly. Um, like any book or anything that you read and study and interpret, it's some literature or some writings will be more important to do some of these phases versus others. But at least this is kind of the best attempt I can do, give you to sort of say, here are the, quote, steps, the things you need to do uh, in order to study the Scripture. Um, it, or better, be a more discerning and a more intelligent uh, reader of a commentary. I mean, in some ways, that's really my big goal here. I'm not asking you to be able to do a lot of this stuff, uh, especially since you don't have, of course, the original language, and most of this would require that. But, but what I want you to do is to be a discerning student of commentaries or books that you read. And, and you will begin to sniff out things that are like, hold it, that's one of those fallacies that we learned about, or hold it, that's, I'm not sure that's a good way to do a word study. Those are the kind of things that, that I'm hoping you will pick up from this. But the first thing we do is pray. Um, again, we're not praying for revelation, we're praying for illumination, uh, that God would do a work on us, enabling us to uh, uh, be open and able to discern the meaning of the scripture. Second, we do a, a, a book review. Um, that is, we, we find, a, I give you a couple, but there's some online, but, or a good commentary will do it, but you, you, you start with the book that you're in, the book of the Bible, and you go get a good 
uh, introduction to that book and get the big picture. What are the major themes, things like that. So we talked about that. All this is here. We want to use several translations, particularly uh, I gave you a couple of specifics. Um, they're different. There's different uh, theories of interpreting, of, of translating the Bible. And uh, it's best if you get something that will help you to, um, and there are also different uh, sources for our Bible. And so the different translations, the way I've outlined them here, will help you get to that a little bit. It's a kind of a, a way to get to the original language a little bit better. So get a couple of translations, and where they differ, there's an interesting question there. And you want to slow down and see what's going on. The advantage of different translations, I went through that. I won't go through that again. Third, Fourth, you're going to define your passage. Now remember, uh, I showed you that that's a more important step than you think. Um, we don't believe in what we call, you know, proof texting, um, where you take a, pass, a scripture or a sentence right out of the context, um, because that's, that is the open door to what we call isogesis, you know, what isogesis is, right? You know, I into the Jesus, you know, sort of thing. Um, that's how we do that. That's what people do. It becomes a very, we're trying to avoid subjectivism and interpretation. The best way I know to do it is to not look at the fundamental unit of the passage and make sure that we, we get it from the beginning to the end. And there's kind of different layers of that. And I talked about that last time we were here, but um, anyway, you can go back and listen to the tape if you want to about that. Um, and I illustrate that and how different uh, something can be when you just blop off a paragraph. Um, discerning the immediate context. Um, uh, that's where, again, a general outline of the book of the Bible might help you. What's the main point before and after the passage? Notice especially the transition words into your passage. There's a therefore. You know that you're in the middle of an argument, that kind of basic thing. Um, discern the literary genre. We spent a whole week on that last time, or a whole half uh, study on that. Uh, I won't review that, but we're going to start doing that today. Word studies. Now, this is where I wanted to just uh, slow down a little bit. Um, you know, we talked a little bit last week, or last two weeks ago, about word studies. Remember that? Uh, what's the no-no, by the way? Anybody want to tell me? Yeah, the root word studies. Not a good way to do a word study. Uh, we talked about that. It's, it's all about semantics. It's the semantic range in a given culture at a given time. So you need to go back to the first century. Particularly look at how that same word is used by the author elsewhere. And you can really derive a lot by that, you know, but that root word thing, you know, is, is a misnomer. And, I, and, I, and I'm slowing down a little bit because I want to make sure you know how to do that. So often what you'll do is you'll start with a concordance. By the way, how would you choose the word, do you think? When, when do you do a root word study? Or, I mean, no, not a root word, a word study. It's probably because the argument hinges on it, right? Or there's something that's, it seems to play a significant role here. It could be an adjective, by the way. It could be a verb. It could be a noun. It could be all sorts of things. But somehow that something seems to be turning on this word. It, it, it gets your interest in a way that you really need to know what that means. And you can't readily discern it from the context. Um, and so uh, how would you do it? You'd get a concordance. Again, you could use Strong's. There's, an, there's na Naves or not na Naves concordance as well. There's others. There, many of these are online. And the reason you're doing that is you'll see your English word 
but it'll tell you what the Greek word is. It'll, it'll give you a little number or something. And then you can take that, num that Greek word and find that same word in the scripture. You see what's going on? So that way you can look up that word that you now know is the, see, because the English doesn't tell you what the Greek word is. So you might have the word, as we showed the other day, the word boast could be kalkametha, but it could be a lot of other Greek words. You're trying to find the exact same Greek word that's behind your English text. And then you're going to go find that Greek word, especially in the, the author and, and who he does it. And then you can begin to say, oh, every time Paul, this word shows up in Romans, it's trend, it seems to be this word boast. And then over here, it's rejoice. Hmm, I'm not liking this translation of rejoice. I'm going to put boast in there and see how that changes the meaning. Things like that. So you start with a concordance, and then you consult a good lexicon. Um, I give you a couple of, for, I'll give you one for the Hebrew, I give you one for the uh, Greek, and you go find that word in a dictionary, uh, by a Hebrew dictionary, English dictionary, and that will give you a range. And oftentimes they may even have your text mentioned as an example. Um, so that's a gist of, of a root word study, but again, get a good commentary. Um, I really want to encourage you to get a good commentary. And how do you get a good commentary? The best thing I could tell you to do is go ask your pastor, honestly, because it's not series. Series are written by different authors, and some, you know, there are general series that we can recommend, like the Word series, for instance, is a relatively good one, uh, typically with good evangelical scholars who write them. But um, my guess is, you know, over the years, you know, between your pastors who've been preaching through books of the Bible, they have, and with the help of all their colleagues and, and who, you know, every time I start a book, a Bible study, I'll get online. Hey, hey guys, i.e. other pastors, what are some of the commentaries you guys use for this text? And we just start sharing the resources. So go get the resources. Um, and um, typically a, com a good commentary, by the way, is there's two types. Um, one's going to be very uh, grammatical and is going to really focus on sort of word studies and grammatical analysis, things like that. Others are going to be more thematic, like big picture. In fact, there's a whole series that does one. There's a whole series that does another. Um, it's good sometimes to have both of those. Now, again, you're not going to preach a sermon. You're going to be teaching a small group Bible study with a curriculum. I don't know that you'll ever need to do this, but at least you know what's behind it. Um, so that's sort of what you do there. Again, I gave you the, the warning about rude studies. The other thing you might do is a syntax uh, or sentence flow, or and I think I've asked that before. You've probably done that when you were in seventh grade in an English class, right? You know, where you learn how to sentence structures and where you put subordinate clauses under the main clause, discerning, you know, things like that. Um, you know, especially in the epistles, you want to do that, you know, because it's a very logically argued thing usually in epistles. So uh, do a little bit of that um, and just kind of make, and it's just making you, what you're basically doing right now is slowing down. And what I'm trying to get you to do is resist the temptation to import yourself into the text. Because when we don't, when we don't have something to do, we just start putting our own, we just start importing ourselves into it, don't we? It just, what did, what does my gut instinct tell me this means? And that's going to be impacted by your own life and lens and everything else. 
Well, then now you've kind of you're probably through with the text itself, and now you're going to put it in the con the greater redemptive historical or covenantal context. We spent a whole lesson on that. You're going to see that illustrated today a few times, um, so I won't get into that now. Uh, but making sure you translate it from this covenant to the other covenant and how those two covenants relate and don't relate. There's discontinuity. There's continuity. I know that's just. I know you must hate this, but I'm just trying to kind of get get you warmed up. So hang in there with me. I call it theme comparison, but really what I want to say is confessionalism. Um, okay, now you've come up with this main this 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 is what the this is the topic of this text. Um, this is where you'll want to uh, well first theme comparison. Where does the Bible speak about that issue elsewhere? That's a good way to start getting the guide wells. In other words, there's there's the scripture is amazing, and it's incredibly nuanced. And I there are many times when I would you know I could be looking at this scripture and it seems to say something really unique, and it might even be off the reservation. And that's where I want to consult. I want to interpret scripture. Remember one of the rules of interpretation: interpreting scripture with scripture. So now let's see what the scripture says about this topic elsewhere. We're talking about sin, or we're talking about, you know, redemption or something, you know, the nature of Christ, whatever it is. And you'd be surprised how that'll start to, to whittle, kind of give you a parameter. Okay, whatever this means, it can't go out, it can't go outside of this circle. Because I'm, you know, because that would contradict something that another passage clearly said. So that's what I mean by interpreting scripture by scripture one level is go to another passage, and if this passage says something that contradicts what I think this passage is saying, our assumption is, because there's one author, that God's not an idiot, and so I need to go back and figure out how to interpret those two passages, and particularly the more confusing one. That's what I mean by theme comparison. Your Bibles often have cross-references. That'll help you. Um, uh, if you're in the New Testament or Old Testament, often it'll give you a cross-reference in the New Testament or the Old Testament, whichever other it we're talking about. That's very helpful, particularly if the author's quoting, like uh, he does in our sermon this Sunday. Then we have a main point, and we put it in the confessional context. Um, it's always important to remember that your text has one point, even if it has seven subpoints, but look for that one point. I mean, you you know, when you're when you're saying something, your your unit, if you will, you're 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 saying one thing, even if that one thing has, like I said, five, six, maybe subpoints. So try to find that. You know, he's saying justification is by grace through faith alone, even if he's now going to talk about imputation language, crediting language, how that gets transacted, stuff like that. But what's the point? And then go find that point in your confessional context. Uh, what is what, ha, what The church who's been reading the Bible for 2,000 years has passed down to you, that you, you can read your Bible with your church of 2,000 years. How do you do that? Through a confession of faith that has used other confessions. And they've gone to the same thing you're doing right now, and they've studied the Scripture, and, and they can compare it with what other churches of other eras have said the Scripture teaches. That's one of the best ways I know uh, to check yourself and to keep you on the reservation. 
So do a confessional. It's, it's just, it should bother us with this sort of modern, postmodern snobbery, I call it, that always new seems better. What are we saying when we say that? It's pretty arrogant when you stop to think about it. We're progressive. Maybe we're just arrogant. We think that, I mean, you know, you can go back. It's amazing to me, you know, as I study the scripture and I'll go look at Augustine or I'll go look at, you know, Luther or Calvin or go look at the 19th century church in America or whatever. And there they are. And they're, they're looking at the same Greek word I am. It's such, a, such an incredible feeling for me when I find that. And there's Calvin. He's asking the same question I'm asking. Well, how did he come? What did he say about that? What did the church, did they all agree with him when he said it that way? And that's through a confession. And when you, you can really be pretty confident you got your theology right if you're within that mainstream confessional history. And when something goes off the reservation, man, I'm going to be really hesitant. When for 2,000 years the church didn't believe this, and now this is the way you got to believe it, to be, quote, politically correct or whatever correct, um, it really should raise some questions. Uh, finally, discerning related significance, the take-home, we won't talk about it. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. That was about 10 minutes, right? That was a rush. Please forgive me if I'm you. You're feeling very frustrated right now. But I wanted to kind of get you warmed up and see if you – I didn't feel like we got quite the big picture last time, so I wanted to do it. So I'm going to stop now and ask, do you have anything to ask or question or comment about this 12 steps of Bible interpretation? Yes. I can't hear you. You're going to have to get her to – yeah, yeah. That's just one source, the Textus Receptus. So I don't just believe in the King James. That is a very parochial, in-house discussion going on in the Christian church. Um, I think from a bigger, there's an eclectic text source, which means that you have all the, dot, all the fragments that are all, come, they all are brought together. And out of that, a, a source was put together. Uh, it's called an eclectic text. Um, and then the Textus Receptus is the first, the earliest complete text that we have, but it's not the earliest fragments that we have. You see what I'm saying? So I like to use both. Um, again, I mentioned that earlier in the, in the pick your, your, your translation. Uh, the new King James is probably easier to read if you want to read the King James, but um, that would be my answer. They're both good. That's my answer. Any other? Yeah. More or less the same thing. I mean, I mean, there's there's some technical uses, but ex, you know, exegesis is the actual work of of interpreting, and hermeneutics is sort of taking that interpretation into how we apply it into our lives. Some people use that kind of a thing, but most people use it as synonymous. Yeah. I don't think I've heard it used in that sort of way uh, as a specific. Sorry, I might not have heard it all, but any other questions? Yeah. Y'all were talking about commentaries. Now. He, he's, he's a good devotional. Um, he's not a, I mean, his commentaries are, um, I mean, 
I don't know what was behind those commentaries. They're not going to give you a, a literary analysis. They're not going to give you uh, a lot of stuff. So he is he's sort of in the realm of a good devotional uh, commentary, I guess. I wouldn't put him in a in a exegetical level per se. He does know it. I mean, but he you know he a lot of his theology which this happens to be a lot of our theology, you know, comes through it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just a different type of commentary. It's maybe one way to look at it. But he certainly has some... I'm going to keep going around the room. Yeah. Um, it's... I mean, we, we could start talking about commentaries for a while. It's, you know, it's probably a little more liberal than I'd want it to be. I'll just put it straight. Um, it, they're, you know documentary thesis, some of these sort of things come through it um, in ways that can get you off balance. But on the other hand, it's a great source, and there are good scholars who write in it, and, and um, you know, I've used it, but it wouldn't be my go-to. Okay, we're going to move on unless I, I someone, I'm going to give everybody, anybody else wanted one? Yeah. Okay. I haven't used that. I haven't used that. We we we'll uh, we could talk later about commentaries because again there's tons of them uh, again the word com uh, I, we could, maybe I should give you a few I, I'm hesitant because literally I want to encourage you to be book specific with commentaries um, instead of series specific there are some series that are more trustworthy than others true and I'll, I'll maybe I'll give you those in our next time I'll kind of think about it and see which ones I'd give you but you really do want to do I mean new commentaries are being written that respond to new challenges against scripture and from good sources that are evangelical and and I would rather get you those um, okay let's talk about literary method again and at this point I'm going to take you off of my um, PowerPoint and I'm going to go right to the website hopefully there we go, and there's narratives. Can you see it? Is it big enough? It's about as big as I can get. It's not big enough. Kind of. Y'all don't y'all don't talk too loud or anything. I mean, you know, I wouldn't want to hear you or something. <laughs> Is that okay? Okay. So let's talk about Old Testament narratives. Um, uh, you know. The first thing is just keep in mind that it's it is the most predominant type of, of literature in the Bible. Over 40% of your scripture is narratives. Um, you know, books that I, I list the books that are predominantly narratival, um, and then others that have a substantial amount. Um, I think this is going to be the easiest one for you to think about because you've probably gone to high school and college, some of you, and graduate students more, some of you, and, you know, you've learned how to read literature, you know, and, and a lot of what you're going to we're going to talk about relates to that, but I do want to put it in a biblical context. Um, but basically, the most important thing I can tell you is don't lose the meta narrative. What do I mean by meta narrative? Anybody? Yeah, it's the narrative, the one narrative that all the narratives are in relationship to. That's really important. Now, don't confuse that. This is not the same as if you've ever heard the phrase, a canon within the canon. That was a Luther phrase sort of thing. That's different. That's sort of the theme. Like, 
Luther would say it's justification by grace through faith alone is the canon that all the scripture is about. I would agree with him, though it's a very important teaching. Um, but what we're talking about, the meta narrative, of course, is there is a it is a story of God revealed through redemption to the world. It's a revelation of God through redemptive history. It's that's the narrative. It's it's the redemptive story through which we know God. Have you ever stopped to think about it? It's not this abstract, God could have written a book. Here's what God is and what God thinks. But he, it's all written in history, which is why narratives are so important, historical narratives. It's all revealed. The revelation of God is through redemptive history. And these narratives are the historical narratives through which God speaks to his people. And that's very important um, because the historicity of a narrative is what then defines it and regulates it. It's not myth. We've talked about that unless it's a parable or something like that. And so um, it's very important to remember that there's a story. These are not isolated stories. They're part of a divine story. They're not just stories about people who lived in the Old Testament. So if that's true, who do you think the hero is going to be? Yeah, and every one of them. God's going to be the hero. Even if Abraham is, you know, a character that is, 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 is the main person of this narrative, let's say. Um, don't confuse it with fiction, but it is a story. And, um, and that means it has plots and characters and events, and it develops and climaxes and things like that. But it's set, it's there for a reason. It's not just history. It is the revelation of God in, with, and through redemptive history. That's really important. Because if you read a history, a historical narrative, and you haven't gotten to the place of, what have I now learned about God? And what have I learned about my salvation? Or God's will? You know, then we've not quite gotten there yet. Um... It's not to say that, that there are not heroes, subplot heroes, if you will, in the, in the Bible, those that we're to imitate. But be careful, because oftentimes, almost every one of those heroes, you don't want to imitate them. The only one you can imitate all the time is Jesus. You know, there'll be moments when they will, exp I mean, that's one of the things that's really amazing, which makes me believe the Bible is actually real. It's messy. I mean, right when you think, you know, we got a great hero going here with Abraham, he, he, you know, he gives his wife away to save his life, you know? Um, you know, Moses, you know, you know, can't even make it to the promised land because of his sin, you know? It's like incredible. And so uh, you have to be careful with that. Um, don't confuse the, a narrative with an allegory or stories filled with, quote, hidden meaning. That is one of the big mistakes that that a kind of what's called neo-orthodoxy or what we call the new hermeneutic and evangelicals pry and large for the last 50 years have been neo-orthodox. And they love importing this sort of hidden meaning, spiritualized meaning into a story. Be careful. That's subjectivism. That's just you putting your own self into the text. The text is meant to speak to us in a definitive way. And it can, and it will. 
That is to say, uh, be careful of what I call maximist versus minimalist sort of interpretations. Um, I, I think this could be one of the most important things I say tonight. Um, I see a lot more damage done uh, because we read too much into the text than damage done by not reading enough. I mean, to give you an illustration, um, you know, cancer is what? It's, it's, it's a growth. It's an additional growth on the body, right? That's cancerous in a biblical hermeneutic context. You're, it's a cancerous way to read the Bible, to read it in a, such a manner that we um, now uh, have all this, these uh, cancerous lumps in our theology. So be careful. Let, let the scripture, the, where the scripture is silent, let it be silent. That actually is telling you something. So silence is very loud in an in a exegetical context. All the time. If, don't, you know, if I can't find it by good and necessary inference, then just be at peace with that. That directs you. That's not what God's trying to say anyway then. If I've got to import it, just because I'm curious. A lot of damage has been done that way. I mean, I give the illustration of Genesis all the time, but, you know, all, you know, for thousands of years, you know, um, Augustine interpreted yom, the Hebrew word for day, correctly and said day can be all sorts of things. He thought it might, might have been a millisecond. But he was right. Yom is a, is, is a period of time. That's all it is. Um, the context tells you what period of time. It wasn't until the, you know, the, the Scopes trial and the fundamentalist debate controversy and all of that that a reaction to liberalism and to anti-supernaturalism produced this hermeneutic now that wants us to read Genesis by importing into Genesis a controversy that Moses had no earthly idea about. And it was about science all of a sudden. It's not a science book. It has nothing to do with science. Nothing to do with it. It's, it's about redemptive history, remember? That's the meta narrative, And so you could take you through that. Um, so that's what we mean by, the hit, by, you know, by be a minimalist, if, if you mean by that. Um, you know, really let the scripture um, speak and let's not import into it. And, and let the question that the scripture is addressing be the question that we address. It really is an act of incredible submission to interpret scripture. Incredible discipline in scripture of submission, just just taking myself out of it, letting it speak. Um, six narratives represent an implicit kind of teaching rather than a direct kind of teaching. It's, it's often not going to give you a truism or a proverb or a thus saith the Lord, X equals Y, you know, kind of statement. It's what you learn through the story, which I think is, is you know, so, you know, it's, uh, I'll give you to illustrate David and Bathsheba, you know, nothing like in committing adultery murder, David did wrong. It doesn't tell you that. And a lot of people try to find, they try to make a, a narrative into a law. Well, how could God, it'll tell you the story of some mass murder or something. And we just write in there, but it doesn't tell, well, it's not supposed to. It's just telling you that there's another, there's another purpose here. You'll find that elsewhere in scripture. There's been, I think I showed it to you when we did the uh, when we did that trajectory hermeneutic thing that we talked about, and how many people will go to the Bible and say, well, the Bible condones slavery, American slavery. It doesn't. But it does acknowledge that it exists. 
in the various eras, even if in a different form most of the time, by the way. Um, it would be a little bit different. But um, So just be careful about that kind of stuff. You see, that's that minimalist thing I'm trying to say. It's constantly restraining yourself from imposing a question or a belief or a issue that is not envisioned in the Scripture itself. It will cover. It will be su sufficient. Remember we talked about that, the reliability and sufficiency of the Bible? You, you can get what you need to know in order to live a godly and, and fulfilling life but you're going to have to get it where God wants to get. So to me, in, my, in what I'm trying to say to give you an illustration, I've, I find it just a little hairs less onerous when I hear a text saying the right thing, but from the wrong text. It's important that we learn to say the right thing from the right text. That's, that's another way to say this. Um, um, because we do believe that there's an objectivity in the Scripture, and we do believe that God made it accessible to us through interpretation. If we'll just, it's kind of, most of this is like, duh. Just respect it. Respect it and love it and let it speak to us. Um, so I've talked about the greater uh, narrative. Think about it in levels, maybe. Three steps of interpretation. Level one, there's a top level, the whole redemptive plan of God. So that... Genesis to Revelations, basically. There's a middle letter level, which is the immediate redemptive context, say the patriarchal age, noetic age, you know, mosaic period, judges, theocracy of David. Those are a middle level. And then there's the bottom level, which is the individual plot characters, et cetera, of a particular story. Learn to kind of put that and, you know, try to analyze it in those three ways. How does this fit into the Davidic kingdom? How does this fit into the greater redemptive historical kingdom? So in the Davidic kingdom, you, it's a theocracy. There really might be a truism. Those who are unrighteous will starve to death. Because there is a, we talked about that two weeks or three weeks ago. There really is a geopolitical material ramification to being unrighteous. Like, that, like it would be in any nation state. If you break a law, you're going to go to jail. If you break a law in the church, in redemptive history, you don't go to jail. You might go to hell if you don't repent and believe in Christ, but you see the difference? Think of it as kind of simple that way. Um, so if you're in a theocratic environment, um, you know, and the law was not only the law for the church, but also the law for the state, then there might be corporal punishment in the Davidic kingdom. That doesn't mean now that you go take that text and poured it into our context, which is under Christ, and say we should have corporal punishment. So I would—I don't want to hear anyone argue ever for anything in a civil sphere that is necessarily derived from the Old Testament. In other words, I believe in court, you know capital punishment because I see it in, in, in you know Exodus. Well, you might—you if you want to use Exodus as one of many civil codes and study the common grace effects of that, that's fine. You could do that. Along with the Hammurabi or whatever, you know. There are many different, you know, sources for civil codes. But to go and use it as if God, you know, gave us the law of Moses for American civilization is to not work those three levels. But it doesn't mean the law is irrelevant. 
what does the counterpart, and a the, how do you go from this theocratic uh, geopolitical manifestation of the kingdom of God under the Davidic kingdom to the new covenant where he says, this kingdom is not of my world. You don't use swords anymore. But it still means that we're in a spiritual warfare. There still means there's, there is a death that we want to be afraid of, of a spiritual nature that is eternal, and on it goes. That makes sense? So think three levels. Obviously, translating to three steps, and I give you sort of the questions you would do. You'd analyze the particular story, and now I'm going from bottom up. Look at the story. What are the characters? What is the plot? What is the climax? Whose perspective is the story given? Where does it take place? Repeated phrases, ideas. When did it take place? There's a whole set of questions that you can be asking. Then you understand the story as it pertains to the redemptive context of that day. Example, if under the Mosaic Covenant, we want to know the teachings of Deuteronomy to determine how the immediate narrative is related to the first level covenant context. When we talk about prophets in a minute, you're going to see how important that phase is. A prophet is a covenant executor of the Mosaic Covenant. Therefore, guess what? I'm going to go to Deuteronomy, which is where the covenant was re re renewed, and you're going to probably find everything that that prophet predicts is coming right out of Deuteronomy. When it said, here's what you should do, here's the stipulation, if you don't do it, here's the curse. And God said he was going to exile them from the land if they did certain things. The prophet comes along, we think he's predicting the future, well he is, but it's not because he's really that brilliant or he had a special revelation, he's just exegeting the law. And he's going to the law and he's going to say, well, the law said if you go and make, make alliances with Assyria that you're going to be exiled to Assyria. Or, or people like Assyria. Wasn't he smart? No, he just read his Bible and told the people what it said. Isn't that something? So that's what I mean by that. And then, of course, the new covenant context is that what relations the immediate redemptive covenant have with the new covenant of Christ? Um, I give you some. Uh, I, I give you some tips. I've already warned you about the hero uh, issue. Uh, narratives. I think I've mentioned this too. They record what happened, not necessarily what should have happened. Don't be too quick to interpret that. Just because it's there doesn't mean God doesn't have an opinion about it. But that's not the point of his that story right there. To tell you everything there is to know about all of life through that one story. Um, all narratives are selective and incomplete. What does appear is, every, is everything the author thought was needed to give the purpose of the being told. If you were to write the story of what happened to a friend, you're going to be very selective because you're really wanting to, you're not, you might not, maybe you just want to tell them everything that happened, I guess. But, but remember, this is all about revealing God. It's a theology before it's a history. So how would I write a theology of God through telling a story or a theology of my salvation through telling a story? Well, I might have something to say. And you're going to very carefully craft that. And that's going to be very important in the Gospels. You're going to see that in, in the Gospels next week, I'm going to warn you against the harmonizing approach of the Gospel. You know what that is? That's when people take the four Gospels and they try to harmonize them. No, I'm not going to want you to do that. You know, we're going to have a different approach where we're going to look at how they're different and that actually is a clue as to what this guy's saying. We like it. All right. They have a different order here. That's going to be a great clue for me to tell me what is this person trying to get me to know about Christ and my salvation. Maybe different than what Mark wanted me to know about Christ. Not different in the sense that it's 
that's opposed to, but just a different emphasis because he's writing to a different community. You know, what does it mean that, that you know, well, I could go on and on. Um, here are some of the errors that I want you to really be careful about. Number one is allegorizing. Again, there is no hidden meaning. This isn't magic. This isn't mystery religion. It's there. God didn't write it to play a game with you and hope it make it hard. You know, if you look at it and you, and you understand the scripture a little bit, you're going to be able to find it out. It's probably more simple than you think. It really is. So be careful. Don't allegorize or, or look for hidden meanings. Decontextualizing, ignoring the full historical and literary context. It's so important to know who Paul's writing to and why, if, if he gives you that in the text, which they normally do. Selectivity, picking words and phrases to, uh, to concentrate on, ignoring others or the overall sweep of the passage. Subjectivization, I keep talking about that. Treating text as if it had you in mind. That's where we get a lot of problems. Uh, again, that's called neo-orthodoxy. Church rejected that 70, 80 years ago. Um, but we do it all the time. I hear people do it all the time. Uh, where we just kind of import ourselves into the text and figure that this is talking to me. Like, we all have our Gethsemanes. Really? Maybe that was a historically unique moment related to a historically unique event that is going to be a unique play, way for us to understand. Now, maybe it's true that the text will give us permission to say something like that. We certainly have permission to say we all carry the cross in some level. We all share in the sufferings of Christ because Christ told us, take up your cross and follow after me. And maybe we will have a type of temptation like Gethsemane. But we got to be careful that we don't let that obscure what really is going on there. What really is going on there is Jesus is going to hell. And he's being tempted not to. And that's a very powerful thing for our justification, isn't it? That he's satisfied righteousness for us. Um, false combination. That's when you combine elements from here and there and passage and make a point out of them. Uh, example 23, David saying he will dwell in God's house forever and that God has prepared him a table in the presence of enemies. Therefore, the enemies must be in God's house. See what you just did? You know, where you take two passages that are talking about two different things and all of a sudden, yeah. And I hear that sometimes too. Okay, questions about um, narratives. Let you kind of. Notebooks of the Bible. Um, well, first of all, we're going to decide when we call it to the Gospels, we're going to make a very clear distinction between um, uh, parable and allegory. Parable is not an allegory, parable is a story, fiction, fictional, perhaps. It's a fictional story. But it, it's it's you, there's not this allegorical one to one correspondence. This this is symbolic for blank. This is symbolic for blank. Um, so I'm trying to think where I could find. I mean, there there is an allegorical nature, of course, to uh, to revelations and and some apocalyptic, you know, literature. Um, Um, well, and maybe you're talking about, you know, the allegorical nature of, say, Song of Songs. Um, Ruth, I'm not so sure. Um, 
Well, okay, now those aren't quite allegories. Um, so let me distinguish, let me see if I can do this quick. So one of the methods of prophesying in the Old Testament was called enactment prophecy. It's where God would actually, uh, by God's providence, enact a situation in a prophet's life that becomes a metaphor, maybe better, um, as related to Israel. I'm going to tell you, that is really spooky because I know having preached through scriptures, it's amazing how often there'll be something happening in my life that will make me more alert to the scripture. But I don't want to go to say that I'm not being an enact, but, but it's a very common theme where where they will enact the word that God has for Israel in their life, if you will. That's why I'm a little nervous to call, for instance, Hosea. I mean, I think there was a real, I mean, there is debate about that, whether that was a historical event, the, the adultery of his wife, et cetera, of Gomer, or not. Um, uh, my, my guess is it was real. And um, my, not my guess, my inform, because again, it would open a can of worms because now we'd have no rule of when we would, I mean, the clear thing would be though that you'd have to have permission for scripture to do it. So to answer your question, you would really need scripture to give you that permission because the scripture actually imports it into a specific meaning that would, you might describe as somewhat allegorical. Does that, does that help? That's really important though. You don't do it unless there's somehow permission to do it. So, for instance, in the in the story of of, of the Song of Songs, I mean, it is clearly a, a, a story, a, a song about love, about the search for true and everlasting love. And no doubt, it uses the the metaphor of the marriage, but the scripture uses that that metaphor all over the place for God and Israel. Well, but but He does it though. We don't we don't import it into it. So you have to, that's my, so yeah, there's allegorical, but I'm trying to say there's, you know, you have to let the scripture tell you to do it versus you doing it, starting to spiritualize it, basically. That's really the thing I'm trying to say. So for so you said Ruth, I don't know where Ruth necessarily gets that permission, whereas I do see it in the Song of Song, I do see it in some other areas, but maybe I'm wrong, okay? You know, I'm not trying to debate on that. Yeah. No. You'll. That's a typology. That's that's probably the better word for that. There's a typologizing going on. We'll talk more about. It. So typology is an event um, in kind that is that sets a pattern of how God acts throughout history, through a sacrificial system. Even you see. But, but Scripture will let, it, it, this isn't going to be rocket science. Don't get confused. Scripture will let you know. I mean, we hear it in the New Testament. Clearly use that, that instance, you know. Um, we see it in Hebrews. So the Bible will actually tell you when that's happening, okay? Okay, real quick. That always relates to that main point, but yeah.
Yeah. Yeah. So the sower and the seed is, um, I'd put that in the category of, of, yeah, it's, it's somewhat allegorical because he gives you an interpretation of each one, doesn't he? And, um, and there is, he's telling you that there is one salvation and there are many pseudo salvations. That's the point. Okay. Okay. Let's move on. We're next going to go to this. Um, I'm going to skip the Psalms for now. I'm going to go to the prophecy because I think that'll kind of help flesh out a few things. I'll go back to the Psalms. So here we go. Uh Oh, it's not pulling it up. My alpha line or something. Do what? What do you say? I can't hear guys. Yeah. Oh, it's there. It came up. Okay. I just didn't see it come. I was staring up at the top. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, let's talk about prophecy, because I think it's going to be short enough and also helpful. Um, I mean, how many of you think, you know, prophet, well, you now know, because I've already busted the beans, but most of you probably think, when you say the word prophets, what do you think? Right? Tell them the future, right? That's what you think. Well, what do we know? He's certainly, he's a preacher, basically. That's basically the thing you preach. He's a preacher. But yeah, he's, a, he's certainly a preacher that's a prophetic. Um, remember, Paul uses prophesying for preaching in Timothy. Um, there are four major prophets. Uh, mostly that relates to the, just the mere length. Um, although there's some who would also see them as more national, uh, like, like Billy Graham would be a, a, a major prophet. And then there are 12 prophets that are somewhat localized. Um, all written between 760 and 460 BC. The big misunderstanding is foretelling or prediction. Reality is less than 2% of all Old Testament prophecy does that. Less than 2%. Um, they are covenant executors. So what do I mean by that? Anybody want to help me out? What's a, what, what is an executor of a covenant? It's a lawyer. But what, what, what do they do as a lawyer? to do it, be an executor. Okay, and you could even get clear for it. They carry out a covenant, whether it's a last will and testament or covenant, uh, whether it's a redemptive covenant, like Moses' covenant in particular with the Old Testament prophets. So they are executing a contract. That's really important to know because now you're going to see in the literary genre certain types of prophetic oracles that relate to the certain elements of that covenant contract. And I'll show you what I mean. Uh, but for now, just notice this idea. They're spokespersons for God. Often you hear, and the word of the Lord came upon, those, that's a formulaic way, oh, we're among the prophet, this is a prophet. Um, they're enforcing a covenant, if you will, who proclaim the covenant blessings and curses to Israel. The prophet's message was not of their own, but God's. And again, it relied on previous revelation. Even if they had the, the unction of the Spirit uh, to be also the Scripture themselves, um, but consistent with... Uh, now, whenever you see a handout, you'll have to go back to the old um, syllabus, by the way. It'll give you a little more. You'll, you'll see on our, on our syllabus, it says you can find the, the, the I think it's the 14... 
2014 version of this, and you can go back and I think those those are on there. I probably need to go back and put them on here. But they didn't invent the curses, blessings, or message, but they came from the Mosaic Covenant. And then, so I'm going to give you an example here. Um, someone just does. Someone have Ezekiel? Can they just turn to it real quick? I'm going to just ask you to to kind of real quickly. I'm going to have you read some things. So first, I want you to just hear the. I'm going to use Ezekiel as an example. Uh, read one three. There's the formula. Got it? That's what it sounds like to be a prophet. It's a classic formula that shows over and over when there's about to be an important oracle or teaching or proclamation. Yeah, of course he's a prophet. Um, two seven. Let's keep going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it might say that too, but I'm, I just, you know, I don't want to get caught off the details right now. Go ahead. So thus saith the Lord, explanation, you're going to go and speak my words to them. Whether they hear it or not, you're going to say it to them. All right? Uh, chapter 3, verse 1 through 11, I won't read that now. But here's a great illustration. Could, could you read 20, verses 27 through 39 of Ezekiel? Anybody? Were you getting it? I think you are. I'm sorry, stop. See, there's the this saith the Lord God right there in Deuteronomy. Um, but, but, I mean, in Ezekiel. Um, but what I want you to do is listen carefully to the stipulations. Okay, as you listen to this. Listen to what the terms are and what's going to happen. Okay, go ahead. And this is in Deuteronomy. I mean, Ezekiel, I'm sorry. Okay, now go to Deuteronomy 12, somebody. Anybody want to do that?
All right. Thank you. Did you read 13 too? Yes. Okay, good. Um, what did y'all hear? Ezekiel, Deuteronomy, what'd you hear? Huh? Okay, that's the right answer. But tell me what you heard specifically. Yeah, what's this stuff about high places? What else did you hear? Incense, sacrifice, stuff like that. Um, what's going on there, do you think? What, what, was it, what basically was God telling Israel not to do when they go into the, into the Canaanite territory where the promised land is? Act like the people there? In what specific way here, do you think? What is he specifically targeting? Yeah. Well, what's interesting, it's not even worshiping false gods here. That's right. It's worshiping God in a manner that's syncretized with the way they worship their gods. That has almost always been the problem. It's very rare that I see anywhere where Israel worships another god explicitly. Not even Baal. I mean, they, they, they utilize the other gods, the idol's method of, of, of worship, which means that you're now transforming true the true God into a God after the image of another God in the way that you worship. God is as concerned about how we worship as he is about who we worship, because they are related. And so we call this the regulative principle of worship. That's the term that's come down through church history for this that we're to regulate what we do in worship only to be that which by good and necessary from some scripture we can deduce in terms of what we do. I mean, today, what would that look like to violate this, this passage? What's the God, say, of America? What are the American gods? Yeah, health, wealth, maybe. Consumerism, good. Nationalism, populism, Individualism, whatever, you can start doing it. And then all of these things have entertainment media. They have, uh, you know, liturgies that, that come. You could literally take, there's a book that, um, y'all know we've done this with uh, uh, Smith. Um, what's his name again? C.K. Smith? G.K.A. Smith. Um, remember that Sunday school class we did? We talked about liturgies. Everybody remember that last year? I think it was last year, wasn't it? And um, how we began to realize that, that the whole world is worshiping and they're using their worldview and their idols, if you will, but they write a liturgy into their lives that worships that, which are those habits and patterns. Now, what happens? How do you grow a church in a pagan land? What a great idea. Go to every lofty hill and high hell or whatever that word was, under every leafy tree and every high hill. In other words, we are going to adopt their liturgies, their goals, their expectations, all in the name of Yahweh. Well, that got Israel exiled. That was that serious. And um, again, I think, unfortunately, we see that happen all too often. So that's a great example, though, of how closely you must read um, in this book by uh, Stuart Douglas, uh, his commentaries in the Word commentary series, he has a whole chapter where he goes and outlines all of the stipulations and curses and blessings in Deuteronomy 
so that you can, instead of you having to go find it yourself, as you're going through the prophet Ezekiel, you can go and find that. That is a great, I have it as a handout, and you can get it on the previous uh, version of this class. But it's a great little thing to have if you're reading the prophet prophets. Because you go back and say, well, let me go see, you know, what did God say is going to happen if they did this? And you might find it there. It's pretty amazing. Um, so how do we interpret the prophets? Uh, the key thing here I want to make clear is this sort of literary form that it comes in. So you're going to have different um, forms of prophecy. Uh, here they are, our types. One is called a covenant lawsuit. Um, and I give you examples uh, in all of this. Uh, the court convenes. I mean, it literally follows a then pattern of how a court would work. A court convenes, there's an indictment, there's evidence, and there's judgment. And you'll see those all over the prophets if you start looking for it. Those, that pattern. It's pretty easy to see. Okay, there's a woe oracle. This is, this is more of a pronouncement of, of disaster or curse. It's, it's i.e., the time's over now. <laughs> I'm telling you, you're cursed. And it's a woe oracle, they call it. A cry of grief when facing disaster or death like that of, at a funeral. It's kind of a funeral. There's an announcement of distress. There's a reason for the distress. And there's a prediction of doom. And you'll see woe oracles. There's also, of course, salvation oracles or promise oracles. There's a future mentioned in that day, usually. There's something like that in that day. There's a restoration described as a radical change. This, today I was preparing, working on the sermon, and you'll see that I'm going to read Isaiah 40. And in that sermon, you'll see that, that there is a salvation oracle right after a judgment oracle. Um, often that happens, by the way. You're going to get screwed. <laughs> you, you did it to yourself. You sinned. You went on your own way. But then God often will then, through the prophet, tell them, but, but I'm not, I still haven't abandoned you. After you have been disciplined for a while, there will be a season of renewal. And you see it all the time. And that would follow this. The future mention, restoration, blessing and covenant categories, uh, again, see the chart that I have as a, as in that other thing. I'll put it in there later. Remember, when the promises are temporal, like under the Old Covenant, what are you going to expect? Well, you're going to expect spiritual realities of those promises now in the era of Christ's ascension ministry. But we are going to see the material realities where, when? Speak up. In the in consummation in heaven. We believe in heaven, remember? So the mistake that the health wealth gospel, as you said a minute ago, makes the is, is covenant confusion, basically, where they take what was promised in the old geopolitical, you know, the, theocratic covenantal context, and then it's imported into a context that's where we are living in between the comings of Christ during his ascension, where what does Christ explain to us? I mean, all through it, we see that our spiritual warfare now is not civil, it's not material, it's not with guns and bayonets and swords, it's with spiritual principalities and powers, it's with the word, it's with prayer, it's with the breastplate of faith and things like that, righteousness. You see it spiritualized rightly 
because we're the battle is in a spiritual realm, but it's not to minimize that the promises of this. I mean, we we're right now we're walking through um, Psalms and our devotion as a as a staff as pastors and planners. We meet every Tuesday. We have about an hour and fifteen or so minute little worship together where we also discuss scripture. And um, and over and over again, we're saying, man, the Psalms would just be full of it if I didn't believe in heaven. What it's promising is incredible. And if you're thinking, okay, well, Jesus came, salvation has come. Am I experiencing this? Not even close. <laughs> you see? That, that leads to a lot of people leaving the faith because they've got covenant confusion. So it's very important to make that transition that we've been talking about from the old covenant, theocratic, geopolitical natured covenant where, where Moses' covenant was also a state covenant or a state constitution and how that would play out in that, but that was typological, we call it. It was, it was meant to tutor, the outward realities tutored us to the humility because where, did, did, uh, did Israel ever really settle in the promised land with peace and purity and all that lavish milk and honey stuff? <laughs> no, they didn't. They were in fights and skirmish wars from the day they got there. And eventually they were exiled. And we get to Christ. And here he comes to an exiled people, the diaspora, Peter calls them, the resident aliens. Um, and so it's really important you do that. So there's a great example of, of this, you know, what I was talking about in the narrative. You see it now over here in the covenant and the law. Any questions about prophets? Here's your shot. Okay. Um, if not, let's do the Psalms real quick. Um, I hope you can, I would encourage you to read this, and, the, and I'm, I'm not going to, I mean, we're probably not going to get to the Proverbs today, because, uh, but you all just did Proverbs, and hopefully some of it would be very familiar to you. Um, but a lot of people call the Psalms Jesus' prayer book. I think that's just a, um, I think that can be misleading, but, I, but we have it here. Uh, we certainly, what we mean by that is that you want to read the Psalms in that redemptive historical meta narrative in that story of redemption, which will get you to Christ. So here's the thing that's important. More times than not, what the psalm, when you hear the psalm lament, you can discern it as the lament of Christ. When you see the psalm, you know, whatever, it's that kind of thing. And so, so many, most of the psalms, believe it or not, are lament psalms. They are, they are crying out kind of songs. What does that tell you, by the way? I mean, most of these were used for worship, remember. What does that tell you about your spirituality? Is it okay to lament? Absolutely. Is it a healthy worship service that never laments in the worship service? Probably not. There's a lot to grieve about. There's a lot to lament about related to our sin, related to the reality of the world and the suffering um, think about your spirituality a little bit from the Psalms. The Psalms makes it very clear that lament is part of our spirituality. Even as though we, so we grieve, according to Thessalonians, even about the death, 
of a loved one, right? Thessalonians 4, we grieve, but we don't grieve as others do. We grieve as, as those with hope. It's a different kind of lament, a lament that brings us to our knees, brings us to our confession, brings us to our repentance, and yet through that faith in Christ also brings us to hope. So, so but that's something to think about. Um, most often the author is David, but not always, and sometimes it's in the spirit of David. Um. 41% of all direct quotes of the Old Testament are in the New Testament. And, uh, I'm sorry, 41% of all direct quotes of the Old Testament is in the New Testament. Uh, whatever. I, didn't hear, I can't hear. Are from Psalms. Yeah. Is, is that what you said? Okay, that's what I was trying to say. I'm trying to go too fast, aren't I? Um, Jesus alludes to them 50 times. So that should tell you they're pretty important. Um, remember, they are covenantally bound. Where, what covenant are the Psalms uh, working out of? Huh? Mosaic. Good. And there's that temporal aspect under the Davidic realm as well, which was temporal and political. And so think about it. When, when Here's an example. I, I go about it right here. If David does what's called an imprecatory psalm. Anybody know what that is? Big word? It's, it's, it's to call down a curse or a judgment upon someone. So when David curses a nation or curses, you know, prays for God to bring down a curse, does that sound very Christian to you? Are we supposed to ask for God to bring down curses upon all the world? Seems like we're always asking him to save them, right? So what are we going to do with that? Yeah, <laughs> you're learning the code at least, right? <laughs> Mosaic covenant for everything now. Um, okay, tell me what we know about David and his role in the Mosaic covenant at this period of, of Israel's history. He's the king. So in that sense... And he is also a type of Christ, the Messiah. I mean, there's no greater figure that's messianic than David. So that now we can begin to see, I mean, do we pray for God's justice against evil? Absolutely. We love the sinner, but we hate the sin, right? And we hate the devil, always. And so there's a sense in which we can pray an imprecatory prayer, but we've got to bring it into the New Covenant context. Our battle is not against flesh and blood anymore, says Paul, like it was for David. I mean, the enemies of God were Canaanites back then. In the New Testament, you don't have a geopolitical enemy of God. The Gentiles, the nations, are all welcomed in, even as they were in the Old Testament, by the way, but they had to convert to, Jew they had to, convert to Israel. They had to join Israel. That's another one. Israel. Think about what Israel was. Israel was at once the Old Covenant church, just as it was also in the Old Covenant era, a state. Now we have the separation of church and state in the New Covenant. See what I mean? So you got to be careful when you're reading the Psalms. We're going to be through in two minutes. Um, promised land. There's going to be a lot about the, you know, this land and this, and just very graphic, you know, sort of descriptions, poetic songs about the lusciousness of, 
of that land. Well, of course, we know what the Psalms is talking about now. We're not talking about a place in the Middle East. We're talking about heaven, the restored heaven and, and, and earth. So the promised land, so there's a spiritually, land is revealed to mean something more in four main ways. It's spiritual now, regarding Christ himself is our promised, you know, in the terms of Christ, person himself, transcendentally, uh, to refer to the heavenly Jerusalem that comes out of the, of the heavens to earth in Revelations. Eschatologically, the new Jerusalem, that is the second coming and the inheritance of land as a return reward, typologically, you know, um, the theme of, say, uh, slavery in Egypt becomes synonymous with being in bondage to sin in Galatians. You are now slaves, he says. You were slaves, now you're set free. Um, while you could use them, what's, what's, you know, there's, there's some political theologies, if you will, that will take these, these themes of slavery and they will move them into social justice areas. We want to be careful with that because the promise is not directly related to that and the fulfillment, even if it's true that we'd want to, to help people be set free from oppression and bondage and earth. But don't miss the bigger point, which is sin itself. That, and that's why for the church to give up the gospel and do social justice could be a grave mistake because the greatest slavery of all is not that slavery that we have uh, with, with in a human-to-human -human sense, although those are things we should be concerned about, oppression, but that great slavery of, of, that we have within ourselves to sin itself. And on it goes. Well, I want to have to stop here. Um, I'm going to, maybe we'll pick up a little bit on this. Uh, we'll have enough time next week to pick up on the remaining of these. Thank you for listening to the School of Discipleship. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you like the show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org. Until next time, this is CPC Podcasts.